Hi, good afternoon, everybody. Hi. My name is Nina Mamakunian. I am the librarian for literature, theater, and dance in the Archive for New Poetry. I want to start by wishing everybody a very happy National Library Week. So thank you for being in the library. <laughs> I also want to wish everybody a happy National Poetry Month. Yes. Hooray! <laughs> So in honor of National Poetry Month, we've got a really exciting display outside. Some of you have seen it already. Um, we are showcasing our Paul Blackburn audio collection. Uh, Paul Blackburn was a poet in the 1960s in New York. Uh, he was one of the founders of St. Mark's Poetry Project. He was also Octavio Paz's and Julio Cortazar's translator. So he has connections to absolutely everybody in the poetry world in the 1960s. Um, every reading that he organized, that he went to, every poetry festival, anytime a bunch of poets were hanging out in his apartment and talking, he had his reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder out. Um, he and Julio Cortazar even sent tapes to each other, um, you know, back and forth across the ocean. So we have all of that digitized and on display outside this room. <laughs> so if you'd like to see it um, after the reading, if you'd like to listen to something, because we do have headphones so, we're, so you can listen to portions of it, um, please feel free to stop by and ask us questions about it. It's a touch screen. We can, it's lots of fun to play with. Um, if you don't have time to stick around uh, tonight, that's totally fine because we are going to have it up for every single one of these readings. Um, and you can also listen to it at home. Um, we've got uh, postcards and bookmarks um, below the screen that's got the web address on it for you. So you can listen to the poetry in the comfort of your own home. <laughs> so thank you, everybody, for being here. And I'm going to pass the mic on to Brandon Salm now. Thank you, Nina. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. So excited to see you all. Um, I'm Professor Brandon Salm. I'm here in the literature department, and I'm the director of the new writing series. We are so thrilled to have Brian Evanson here this evening and to have you all here with us. Um, Brian's going to be reading, and Brian also brought books, so please check out his books after the reading, and uh, we'll have a, a, a brief, small Q&A afterwards as well, so looking forward to the reading. Um, I wanted to point out uh, a couple events coming up uh, to you uh, to put on your calendars, one happening uh, tomorrow night, actually, so right away, um, uh, uh, Professor Babak Rahimi uh, is uh, he, uh, a colleague of ours in the literature department, is uh, uh, sponsoring a, a, a poetics of spirituality, uh, a poetic performance by the poets uh, Erica Brown, Anna Gassaway, Pinata, and Chase Wiswesser. Uh, that's, again, tomorrow, uh, April 12th, at 6.30, in Atkinson Hall Theater. So definitely check that out. Uh, it should be a wonderful, exciting, fantastic event. For the new writing series, uh, this is the first event of the spring. So again, thank you all for being here. And uh, looking forward, uh, our, our two fantastic colleagues uh, in, uh, in the literature department, Lily Wong and Melissa Banales, uh, will be reading next uh, to uh, fantastic uh, professors here in the English department, and I'm sure some of you have ha had the, the, the privilege, really, of, of working with them. Uh, they'll be reading from their own work uh, on April 25th at 4.30, uh, here in the Seuss Room again. Um, and then looking forward to May 9th, Laylee Long Soldier, uh, an amazing poet, 
will be reading uh, uh, for us uh, here again in the Seuss room. Please come out for that. And then we'll be finishing uh, our spring quarter with two amazing events, our first year MFA reading, some, some of which are here uh, this evening, and our graduating MFA reading. Um, come out, please uh, support our MFA program. Uh, check out our, our amazing writers in our MFA program. Um, they're really fantastic superstars. Um, one of those fantastic superstars is going to be introducing Brian Evanson for us this evening, and I'll bring her up next, Gina Alexandra. Thank you, Brandon. <clears throat> Brian Evanson finds a story in his coat pocket. He isn't sure how it has gotten there. It is just there. His readers want to know how it got in his pocket, but that's not a part of the story. Anything that is not part of the story gets left out. And the story is terrifying. It is made only of words and sentences like trap boxes. Each word is so exacting that when you open one sentence up, it leads directly into the next without a single breath. And here is the real difficulty with such a confinement, says Brian Evanson in the short story, The Report, from the book A Collapse of Horses. It is not that you are kept in, but that the world is kept out. Brian Evanson places his story on a piece of paper and places the paper like a magician setting up a card trick across a book. When you lean over for a closer look, he pulls the world out from under you, replaces it with a world more real than yours. It's like one of his characters in The Promise Keepers from the story collection The Wavering Knife, slamming his head into the dashboard of a cop car, drunk, and finding the acute trauma made things get clearer in some ways, in other ways worse. You feel tricked, certainly, but there is no fanfare. There is just four sharp taps in the place of applause. Brian Evanson's work does not allow for classification. It is boiled down to the bone. It would be too reductive to say that his writing is realist or fabulous, such that, as he himself has said, his fiction veers drunkenly into the fantastic and vice versa. In a collapse of horses, the horses are not quite dead or living. The little girls and the ex-father are also macabre dolls covered in apple juice playing at being dead. And there's humor too, albeit pitch dark in variety. A drunk prayer group trying to salvage the, the declining marriage of a cross-dressing member and his unwilling wife in The Promise Keepers. Or in the story, the intricacies of a post-shooting etiquette, an unhappy lover wondering, hopefully, whether his attempt to murder his partner has finally terminated their relationship. Brian Evanson even wrote a book called Aliens, No Exit, and yes, he meant Ridley Scott's Aliens, and no, I'm not making that up. In each story, there is a thetic rupture, a mirroring. There's what Svetan Todorov called the outer-worldly, where reality is fluid in a way that is different than magical or the uncanny. The magical might cast off with reality altogether, and the uncanny resolves into the explainable. But the outer-worldly defies the insistence between fantastic and the real. The horses are both quite dead and living. What I mean to say is in Brian Evanson's world, anything is possible. There are writers whose work makes you want to reach out and ask, after, and ask if they're okay. <laughs> Brian, Evanson, Brian Evanson's work makes me want to call Brian Evanson and ask him if I'm okay. <laughs> to this he says, I think we learn tremendous things about ourselves, even things we might not want to know about, the limits of our sensibility, about what lies beneath the daily veneer, if we're put in states of panic and discomfort. Being unsettled in your head is a lot different than having a panic, a panic attack at the DMV, for instance, and it is likely to attract fewer police officers. 
Brian Evanson is the author of a dozen books of fiction, most recently the story collection A Collapse of Horses and the novella The Warren. He has, almost, he has also recently published Wine Die and Immobility, both of which were finalists for a Shirley Jackson Award. His novel Last Days won the ALARUSA Award. His novel The Open Curtain was a finalist for the Edgar Award and the IHG Award. Other books include The Wavering Knife, which won the IHG Award, Dark Property, and Altman's Tongue. He is the recipient of, the, of three O. Henry Prizes, as well as an NEA Fellowship and a Guggenheim Fellowship. His work has been translated into French, Italian, German, Greek, Spanish, Japanese, Persian, Slovenian, and Turkish. Brian Evanson is an FC2 writer, formerly taught at Brown, but now lives in Los Angeles and teaches in the Critical Studies Program at CalArts. Brian Evanson says in his short story, The Report, it matters less what the messages say than the fact that I am among those passing it along and that there is someone before me to offer it and someone after me to receive it. But that's just my own read. For the part that the story left out, we need the reader. Let's begin. Please welcome Brian Evanson. Uh, thank you so much for that introduction. I very much appreciate it. Um, it's interesting because that story, the, uh, um, a report, is, is something that um, uh, the French really love. They actually retitled A Collapse of Horses a report. And, uh, and the Americans didn't seem to like it, and then suddenly Americans are starting to like it, which makes me very happy. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to talk about a few things before I get started. One is that I, one, my latest project is this. Um, it's a little book called Another Way to Fall, and it has two short novels in it. Um, one um, by me, um, a little novella called Baby Leg, um, which is very weird. Um, and, and another by Paul Tremblay, who is a, a, someone who's kind of on the line between literature and horror. Um, but this was published by Concord Free Press. Uh, and, and the deal with Concord Free Press is that all their books are free. Um, you can, um, you know, what they ask you to do is if you take a copy of their book um, that you uh, donate to charity in some way. It doesn't have to be any charity they approve of. You can give uh, money to a homeless person. You can, you know, however you designate charity is, is fine. Um, but it's a way of just encouraging giving. And so Paul and I kind of gave them our books for free. Uh, and they kind of put them together in this beautiful package. And I, I brought four of those. Um, any of you who want them are welcome to take them kind of after the reading. I'll just leave them up here. Um, and then if you don't get one and want one, um, if you just go to ConcordFreePress.com, um, they will send it to you and they will pay for postage as well. And so it's, a, you know, it's an actual free book. I know it, it makes people nervous when you try to give them a free book, but this is actually a free book and, and no one's going to check it. Uh, you know, they prefer if you tell them where you donate to so that they can kind of keep track and justify it to their donors. Um, but, but you really don't have to if you don't want to. Um, so uh, I brought that book. Um, I have this book, Immobility 2, which uh, uh, when I was leaving, Kristen, my wife, um, said, oh, you should take some copies of this. I have a, a four or five of these. Um, and she told me I'm not allowed to sell them for more than $5. So if anyone wants this book for $5, it's, it's a kind of strange book about what it means to kind of be post-human. Um, but you're welcome to, to get that afterwards. Um, I'm going to read kind of a mix of things today. Um, I'm going to start by reading stuff that's, that's nonfiction. Um, I published a little book called uh, Reports, and it's a series of, of micro-essays um, which uh, have fictional components, um, but, but often are true, or they're true enough, I suppose. 
and uh, kind of play around with that, that boundary between fiction and nonfiction um, somewhat. Um, so I'm going to read that. I'm going to read you a little bit from A Collapse of Horses, and then uh, if there's time, I'll read you something else. We'll see. Um, so I'm going to read you two reports from this. The first one is called A Report on Lemon Reamers. Um, one of the conceits of this book is that uh, any time a person is mentioned, I just mention them by initial. And that's partly, um, you know, um, like changing the names to protect the innocent, I suppose. When my ex-girlfriend, Jay, moved out of the house, she took all three of our three lemon reamers. This surprised me since there is rarely a situation in which one needs one lemon reamer and you only need two if one is already in the dishwasher. And there are literally no situations in which, in normal kitchen use, you would need three lemon reamers. We talked about this sometimes when she was still living in the house, a little unsure of how we had come to have three lemon reamers and feeling the fact slightly absurd. And so I assumed, quite naturally, that when she moved out, I would not have to say to her, please have the decency to leave me a lemon reamer. But apparently I should have said this, since she did in fact take all three. For a short while, I simply couldn't believe she had taken all of them, a disbelief I would futilely uh, deploy concerning a number of other objects she had taken as well, and assume that, no, there must be one here in the house. I just hadn't found it yet. Every time I needed a lemon reamer, I would look for one, not find it, feel aggrieved toward my ex-girlfriend, and then haphazardly ream the lemon with the bulbous end of a wooden spoon. This went on for about a year. At the end of the year, I did not buy a new lemon reamer, but simply stopped looking for one, resorting immediately to the end of the wooden spoon. I still felt aggrieved, however. In other words, every time I had to ream a lemon, I felt resentment toward my ex-girlfriend. I thought about buying a lemon reamer, and whenever I entered so-called kitchen stores, would look at them. There was nothing special about the three lemon reamers we had had. They were ordinary, plain, wooden reamers, costing less than $5. And I did from time to time see them in stores, and sometimes even put them in my cart. But something always stopped me short of buying them. Now, five years have passed since my ex-girlfriend Jay moved out of the house, and I still have not purchased a lemon reamer. I have grown so accustomed to reaming lemons with the end of the wooden spoon that I imagine myself to be just as accomplished at it as if I were using an actual reamer. My life, I have convinced myself, would not be substantially changed by buying a lemon reamer. I reach for the wooden spoon by instinct. And yet, even now, I still can't help feeling a wave of resentment toward my ex-girlfriend any time I ream a lemon. Why, even now, five years later, do I prefer feeling aggrieved to paying $5 it would cost to buy a new lemon reamer? And even if I bought the reamer now, wouldn't I still feel aggrieved? So, and this one's called um, A Report on a Report on Lemon Reamers. <laughs> when I sat down to write a report on lemon reamers, I planned to tell the truth. That is how I usually approach these reports. But once I started writing, it is not I who decides what to say. Who or what it is that decides, however, would be difficult to say. Still, there are some things about the report that are true. I did have an ex-girlfriend, Jay. She did take our lemon reamers, all of them, when we broke up but there were only two lemon reamers, not three. I initially wrote two, which was the truth, but because it was clear to me that saying two did not make her seem sufficiently crazy and made me seem crazier than it was in my interest to seem, I changed it to three. Three, despite being factually inaccurate, struck me as a great deal more accurate. I will also admit that I was initially confused and referred to the object in the draft of my report as a lemon zester, 
Though to be fair, this was not just my fault, but also Jay's. Since when she wanted it, she would say, hand me that thing for the lemons. And I would respond, what, the zester? And would hold up the reamer. Then she would wordlessly hold out her hand, palm up, and I would put the tool into her hand. I would say she didn't know the right word either, but perhaps she was responding not to the word zester, but to the tool that had appeared in my hand. You see how difficult it is for me? Even in explaining the moments in which I was not telling the truth, I began to not tell the truth in a different way. Moments of intimacy, such as I've described, did not exist between Jay and I. Or if they did, I've managed to repress them. You see? The end of a wooden spoon? Not true. I've never used the end of a wooden spoon to ream a lemon. I use my hand, usually my left, but sometimes my right. I have large hands and can exert enough force to get sufficient juice out of a lemon, at least for any use I have for lemons. Do I think about Jay when I ream lemons? No. Or rather, I only started to think of her in this way after I wrote, wrote my report. <laughs> this is one of the terrible things about writing, the way it leaks out into life, whether you want it to or not. <laughs> so that gives you a sense both of my own neuroses and, and also what that book does, which is it, it plays a lot, a lot with, with just reality and the truth, and in a very different way than my other work does. I mean, I think a lot of my work is interested in this question of, of, of uh, the contingency of reality. Um, but, but rarely are the characters uh, or the narrators really in control of that. Uh, it's more often um, uh, uh, something that happens to the characters rather than, than something that they're in control of. Um, so I'm going to read a story um, which is called uh, the title story of this book, Collapse of Horses. Um, and this story started when, when um, Kristen and I, when we were dating, we were walking through Golden Gate Park and there's a horse paddock in the middle of Golden Gate Park, which not a lot of people know. Um, but we were walking, and we came across this horse paddock. And, and um, weirdly enough, all the horses were lying down. Um, they were all on the ground, which is very strange. And I'd grown up in the West, um, had been around horses, but I'd never seen you know, horses lying down like that before. And so I immediately thought, you know, something must be wrong. And there was a brief moment of just a few seconds where I, I couldn't... Um, um, see the horses breathing and couldn't tell if they were alive or dead. And, and there was someone who was kind of filling up uh, a, a trough kind of behind them um, who, who, had, who was just faced away, and so I couldn't tell, you know, if he'd noticed that they were all lying on the ground. Um, and then we stayed there for just a minute, and eventually um, one of them flicked their tail, and I thought, oh, it's okay after all, and, and left. Um, you know, and since then I've talked to Percival Everett, who, who uh, does a lot with horses, and I said, you know, I saw this thing where these horses are all riding down. He's like, oh, yeah, horses do that all the time. Um, so it's not anything that's really remarkable. But, but it, at the time, it felt remarkable. And it also felt like if I hadn't um, seen them move, I would still kind of be wondering what would happen to them. And so that was really the origin, origin of the story. Um, so I'll go ahead. A Collapse of Horses. I'm certain nobody in my family survived. I'm certain they burned, that their faces blackened and bubbled, just as did my own. But in their case, they did not recover, but perished. You are not one of them. You cannot be. For if you were, you'd be dead. Why you choose to pretend to be and what you hope to gain from it, this is what interests me. Now it is your turn to listen to me, to listen to my proofs, though, if you know, though, though I know you will not be convinced. Imagine this, walking through the countryside one day, you come across a paddock. 
lying there on their sides in the dust, unnaturally still, are four horses. All four are prone, with no horses standing. They do not breathe, and they do not, as far as I can see, move. They are, to all appearances, dead. And yet, on the edge of the paddock, not twenty yards distant, a man fills their trough with water. Are the horses alive and appearances deceptive? Has the man simply not yet turned to see that the horses are dead? Or has he been so shaken by what he has seen that he doesn't know what to do but proceed as if nothing has happened? If you turn and walk hurriedly on, leaving before anything decisive happens, what do the horses become for you? They remain both alive and dead, which makes them not quite alive nor quite dead. And what, in turn, carrying that paradoxical knowledge in your head, does that make you? I do not think of myself as special, as anything but ordinary. I completed a degree at a third-tier university housed in the town where I grew up. I graduated safely ensconced in the middle of my class. I found passable employment in the same town. I met a woman, married her, had children with her, three or perhaps four. There was some disagreement on that score. And then the two of us fell gradually and gently out of love. Then came an incident at work, an accident, a so-called freak one. It left me with a broken skull and for a short, short time a, great, a certain amount of confusion. I awoke in an unfamiliar place to find myself strapped down. It seemed to me, I will admit this too, it seemed for some time, hours at least, perhaps even days, that I was not at the hospital at all, but in a mental facility. But my wife, faithful and ever-present, slowly soothed me into a different understanding of my circumstances. My limbs, she insisted, were restrained simply because I had been delirious. Now that I no longer was, the straps could be loosened. Not quite yet, but soon. There was nothing to worry about. I just had to calm down. Soon everything would return to normal. In some ways, I suppose everything did, or at least tried to. After the accident, I received some minor compensation from my employer and was put out to pasture. Such was the situation. Myself, my wife, my children, at the beginning of a hot and sweltering summer, crammed in the house together with nowhere to go. I would awaken each day to find the house different from how it had been the day before. A door was in the wrong place. A window had stretched a few inches longer than it had been when than it had been when I had gone to bed the night before. The light switch, I was certain, had been forced half an inch to the right. Always a small thing, always nothing at all, just, just, just enough for me to notice. In the beginning, I tried to point these changes out to my wife. She seemed puzzled at first, then she became somewhat evasive in her responses. For a time, part of me believed her responsible. Perhaps she had developed some deft technique for quickly changing and modifying the house. But another part of me felt certain, or nearly so, that this was impossible. And as time went on, my wife's evasiveness took on a certain wariness, even fear. This convinced me that not only was she not changing the house, but that daily her mind simply adjusted to the changed world and dubbed it the same. She literally could not see the differences I saw. Just as she could not see that sometimes we had three children and sometimes four. No, she could only ever see three, or perhaps four, to be honest, I don't remember how many she saw. But the point was, as long as we were in the house, there were sometimes three children and sometimes four. But that was due to the idiosyncrasies of the house as well. I would not know how many children there would be until I went from room to room. Sometimes the room at the end of the hall was narrow and had one bed in it. Other times it had grown large in the night and had two. I would count the number of beds in the morning when I woke up. And sometimes there would be three, sometimes four. Sometimes four. 
From there, to, I could extrapolate how many children I had, and I found this a more reliable method than trying to count the children themselves. I would never know how much of a father I was until I counted beds. I could not discuss this with my wife. When I tried to display my proofs to her, she thought I was joking. Quickly, however, she decided it was an indication of a troubled mental state and insisted I seek treatment, which, under duress, I did, to little avail. The only thing the treatment convinced, the only thing the treatment convinced me of was that there were certain things one shouldn't say even to one's spouse, things they were just not ready and may never be ready to hear. My children were not ready for it either. The few times I tried to fulfill my duties as a father and sit them down to tell them the sobering truth that sometimes one of them didn't exist, unless it was that sometimes one of them existed twice, I got nowhere, or less than nowhere, confusion, tears, panic. And after they reported back to my wife, more threats of treatment. What then was the truth of the situation? Why was I the only one who could see the house changing? What were my obligations to my family in terms of helping them see and understand? How was I to help them if they did not desire to be helped? Since I am a sensible man, a part of me couldn't help but wonder if what I was experiencing had any relation to reality at all. Perhaps there was something wrong with me. Perhaps I tried to believe the accident had changed me. I did try my level best, or nearly so, to see things their way. I tried to ignore the lurch reality took each morning, the way the house was not exactly the house it had been the night before, as if some, someone had moved us to a similar but not quite identical house as we slept. Perhaps they had. I tried to believe I had three, not four, children. And when that did not work, that I had four, not three, children. And when that didn't work, that there was no correlation between children and beds. To turn a blind eye to that room at the end of the hall and the way it kept expanding out or collapsing like a lung. But nothing seemed to work. I could not believe. Perhaps if we moved, things would be different. Perhaps the house was, in some manner or other, alive. Or haunted, maybe. Or just wrong. But when I raised the idea of moving with my wife, she coughed out a strange barking laugh before enumerating all the reasons that this was a bad idea. There was no money and little prospect of any coming in now that I'd had my accident and lost my job. We'd bought the house recently enough that we would take a substantial loss if we sold it. We simply could not afford to move. And besides, what was wrong with the house? It was a perfectly good house, she said. How could I argue with this? From her perspective, of course, she was right. There was no reason to leave. For her, there was nothing wrong with the house. How could there be? Houses don't change on their own, she told me indignantly. This was not something that reason could allow. But for me, that was exactly the problem. The house, for reasons I, don't underst I didn't understand, was act wasn't acting like a house. I spent days thinking, mulling over what to do. To get away from the house, I wandered alone in the countryside. If I walked long enough, I could return home sufficiently exhausted to sleep rather than spending much of the night on watch, trying to capture the moment when parts of the house changed. For a long time, I thought that might be enough, that if I spent as little time in the house as possible and returned only when exhausted, I could bring myself not to think about how unsound it was that I would wake up sufficiently hazy to no longer care what was, there, what was where and how the house differed from before. That might have gone on for a long time, even forever or the equivalent. 
But then in my walks I stumbled upon, or perhaps was led to, something. It was a paddock. I saw horses lying in the dirt, seemingly dead. They couldn't be dead, could they? I looked to see if I could tell if they were breathing and found I could not. I could not say honestly if they were dead or alive, and I still cannot say. I noticed a man on the far side of the paddock filling their trough with water, facing away from them, and wondered if he had seen the horses behind him, and if not, when he turned, whether he would be as unsettled as I. Would he approach them and determine they were dead, or would his approach startle them to life? Or had he seen them dead already and had his mind been unable to take it in? For a moment I waited. But at the time, in the moment, there was, seemed nothing, something more terrible to me about the idea of knowing for certain that the horses were dead than there was about not knowing whether they were dead or alive. And so I hastily left, not realizing that to escape a moment of potential discomfort, I was leaving them forever in my head as not quite dead, but, in another sense, nearly alive. That to leave as I had was to assume the place of the man beside the trough without ever being able to turn and, and learn the truth truth. In the days that followed, that image haunted me. I turned it over, scrutinized it, peered at every facet of it, trying to see if there was something I had missed, if there was a clue that would, have, would sway me toward believing the horses were alive or believing they were dead, if there was a clue to reveal to me that the man beside the trough knew more than I had believed, to no avail. The problem remained insolubly balanced. If I go back, I couldn't help asking myself, will anything have changed? Would the horses still, even now, be lying there? If they were, would they have begun to decay in a way that would prove them dead? Or would they be exactly as I had last seen them, including the man still filling the trough? What a terrifying thought. Since I'd stumbled upon the paddock, I didn't know exactly where it was. Every walk I went on, every step I took away from the house, I risked, risked stumbling onto it again. I began walking slower, stopping frequently, scrutinizing my surroundings, and shying away from any area that might remotely harbor a paddock. But after a while, I deemed even that insufficiently safe, and I found myself hardly able to leave the house. And yet, with the house always changing, I couldn't remain there either. There was, I gradually realized, a simple choice. Either I would have to steal myself and return and confront the horses, or I would have to confront the house." Either horse or house, either house or horse. But what sort of choice was that, really? The words were hardly different, pronounced more or less the same, with only one letter having accidentally been dialed up too high or too low in the alphabet. No, I came to feel. By going out to avoid the house and finding the horses I had, in a matter of speaking, simply found the house again. It was, it must be, that the prone horses were there for me, to teach a lesson to me that they were meant to tell me something about their near namesake, the house. The devastation of that scene, the collapse of the horses, gnawed on me. It was telling me something, something I wasn't sure I wanted to hear. At first, part of me resisted the idea. No, I told myself it was too extreme a step. Lives were at stake, the lives of my wife and at least three children. The risks were too great. But what was I to do? In my mind, I kept seeing the collapsed horses, and I felt my thoughts again churn over their state. Were they alive or were they dead? I kept, kept imagining myself there at the trough, paralyzed, unable to turn and look, and it came to seem to me in my perpetual condition. In my worst moments, it seemed the state not only of me, but of the whole world, with all of us on the verge of turning around and finding the dead behind us. 
and from there I slipped back to the house, which, like the horses, seemed in a sort of suspended state. I knew it was changing, that something strange was happening. I was sure of that, at least, but I didn't know how or what the changes meant, and I couldn't make anyone else see them. When it came to the house, I tried to convince myself, I could see what others could not. But the rest of the world was like the man filling the horse trough, unable to see the fallen horses. Thinking this naturally led me away from the idea of the house and back instead to the horses. What I should have done, I told myself, was to have thrown a rock. I should have stooped and scraped the dirt until my fingers closed around a stone, then shied it at one of the horses, waiting either for the meaty thud of, of dead flesh or the shudder and annoyed wicker of a struck living horse. Not knowing is something you can only suspend yourself in for the briefest moment. Not even if, you ha if what you have to face is horrible. Excuse me. No, even if what you have to face is horrible, is an inexplicably dead herd of horses, even an inexplicably dead family, it must be faced. And so I turned away from the house and went back to look for the paddock, stealing myself for whatever I would find. I was ready, rock in hand. I would find out the truth about the horses and I would accept it, no matter what it was. Or at least I would have. But no matter how hard I looked, no matter how long I walked, I could not find the paddock. I walked for miles, days even. I took every road, known and unknown, but it simply wasn't there. Was something wrong with me, I wondered? Had the paddock existed at all? Was it simply something my mind had invented to cope with the problem of the house? House, horse, horse, house, almost the same word. For all intents and purposes in this case, it was the same word. I would still throw a rock, so to speak, I told myself, but I would throw that so-called rock not at a horse, but at a house. But still I hesitated, thinking, planning. Night after night I sat imagining coils of smoke writhing around me, followed by rising flames. In my head I watched myself patient, waiting patiently, calmly, until the flames had reached just the right height. Then I began to call out to my family, awakening them, urging them to leave the house. In my head we unfurled sheets through windows and shimmied nimbly to safely. We reached safety every time. I saw, our, I saw our escape so many times in my head, rendered in just the same way, that I realized it would take the smallest effort on my part to jostle it out of the realm of imagination and into the real world. Then the house would be gone and could do me no more damage, and my family and I would be safe. I had had enough unpleasant interactions with those who desired to give me treatment since my accident, however, that I knew to take steps to protect myself. I would have to make the fire look like an accident. For this purpose, I took up smoking. <laughs> I planned carefully. I smoked for a, week, for a few weeks, just long enough to accustom my wife and children to the idea. They didn't care for it, but they did not try to stop me. Since my accident, they, they had been shy of me and rarely tried to stop me from doing anything. Seemingly as a concession to my wife, I agreed not to smoke in the bedroom. I promised to smoke only outside the house with the proviso that if it was too cold to smoke outside, I might do so downstairs near an open window. During the third or perhaps fourth week after I took up smoking with my wife and children asleep, it was indeed too cold, or at least I judged that I could argue it to have been such if confronted after the fact. So I cracked open the window near the couch and prepared the images in my mind. I would, I told myself, allow my arm to droop, the tip of my cigarette to nudge against the fabric of the couch. And then I would allow first the couch and then the drapes to begin to smoke and catch fire. 
I would await until the moment when, in my fantasies, I had envisioned myself standing and calling to my wife and children. Then I would do just that, and all would be as I had envisioned. Soon my family and I would be safe, and the house would be destroyed. Once that was done, I thought, perhaps I would find the paddock again as well, with the horses standing this time and clearly alive. And yet, the fabric of the couch did not catch fire, instead only smoldering and stinking. And soon I pressed the cigarette in too deeply, and it died. I found and lit another, and when the result was the same, I gave up on both the couch and the cigarette. I turned instead to matches and used them to ignite the drapes. As it turned out, these burned much better, going up all at once and lighting my hair and clothing along with them. By the time I'd flailed about enough to extinguish my body, the whole room was aflame. Still, I continued with my plan. I tried to call to my wife and children, but when I took a breath to do so, my lungs filled with smoke and choking, I collapsed. I do not know how I lived through the fire. Perhaps my wife dragged me out and then went back for the children and perished only then. When I awoke, I was here, unsure of how I had arrived. My face and body were badly burned, and the pain was excruciating. I asked about my family, but the nurse dodged the question and shushed me and only told me I should sleep. This is how I knew my family was dead, that they had been lost in the fire, and the nurse didn't know how to tell me. My only consolation was that the house, the source of all our problems, had burned to the ground. For a time, I was kept alone, drugged. How long, I cannot say. Perhaps days, perhaps weeks. Long enough, in any case, for my burns to slough and heal, for the skin grafts that I must surely have needed to take effect, for my hair to grow fully back. The doctors must have worked very hard on me, for I must admit that except to the most meticulous eye, I look exactly as I did before the fire. So you see, I have the truth straight in my mind, and it will not be easy to change. There is little point in you coming to me with these stories, little point in pretending once again that my house remained standing and was never touched by flame, little point coming here pretending to be my wife, claiming there was no fire, that you found me lying on the floor in the middle of our living room with my eyes staring fixedly into the air, seemingly unharmed. No, I have accepted that I am the victim of a tragedy, one of my own design. I know my family is gone, and though I do not yet understand why you would want to convince me that you were my wife, what you hope to gain, eventually I will. You will let something slip, and the game will be over. At worst, you are deliberately trying to deceive me so as to gain something from me. But what? At best, someone has decided this might lessen the blow, that if I can be made to believe my family is not dead, or even just mostly dead and not quite alive, I might be convinced not to surrender to despair. Trust me, whether you wish me good or ill, I do hope you succeed. I would like to be convinced. I truly would. I would love to open my eyes and suddenly see my family surrounding me safe and sound. I would even tolerate the fact that the house is still standing, that unfinished business remains between it and me, that somewhere horses still lie collapsed and waiting to be either alive or dead, that we are all in some sense, that we all in some sense remain like the man at the trough with our backs turned. I understand what I might have to gain from it, but you, I still do not understand. But do your worst. Disrupt my certainty. Try to fool me. Make me believe. Get me to believe that there is nothing dead behind me. If you can make that happen, I think we both agree, then anything is possible.
Um, so that gives you kind of one sense of uh, what I what I do. Um, and I think I have time to read. I'm going to read something off my phone, which is a really bad idea. So, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, this is a new story, um, and. Uh, I never prepare to read new stories because if every time I do, I get nervous and don't read them. But occasionally, I can convince myself it's a good idea, and uh, um, and that lasts just long enough for me to start and think, "Oh, this is a really bad idea." So, but I am still in the state of convincing myself, so that's good. Uh, this is a story called "Born Stillborn," um, and I'll mention that the first time I, I read the story, my therapist was in the audience. So, born, stillborn. Haup's therapist had started coming to him at night as well. And even though Haup knew, or at least suspected, that the man wasn't really there, wasn't really standing beside his bed with pencil in hand, listening to him and writing notes on the wall about what he said, he seemed real. There was writing on the wall when Haup awoke. He could not read it, but being familiar with his therapist's unruly scrawl, its illegibility struck him as proving nothing. Their nighttime sessions felt, when he was honest with himself, just as real as his daytime sessions felt, maybe even more real. He did not report this to his therapist during the day. Instead, he waited to see if the therapist would mention it, and when he did not, decided that it must be some sort of test. No, as with so many other things, he would not share this with his therapist unless he was asked about it directly. But during the day, the therapist rarely asked about any, anything directly. He might say, how was your week? Or did you have any dreams? He was never more specific than that. At night, however, standing beside the bed, the night therapist would ask pointed questions, questions that wormed under his skin. When Haupt lied to him, he would say, how gullible do you think I am? When Haupt told only part of the truth, the night therapist would wait, tapping his pencil against the wall for him to go on. And Haupt at night usually did go on, slowly extruding more and more of the truth through his mouth. It was as if the therapist was one thing at night and quite another during the day. Or even, it occurred to him, as if there were two of him, two different therapists who, for some reason, looked identical. Are you a twin, asked Halp once during a daytime session. And the day therapist, usually reticent to talk about himself, was caught off guard enough to say yes, and then shortly after, no. Yes and no, said Halp. How can it be both? I had a twin. He was born stillborn. But when Halp tried to question him more about it, the therapist shook his head. We're here to talk about you, he claimed. Born, stillborn, Halp thought now, late at night. What an odd way to phrase it, considering that, in fact, what you were saying was he wasn't born at all. Why not just say he was stillborn? How was born, stillborn, different from, simply, from simply stillborn? What had the day therapist been trying to tell him? The night therapist was there beside him in the darkness, tapping his pencil against the wall, wanting something. What was it again? What did the man ask? I'm sorry, Hop said. My mind was elsewhere. What was the question again? The pencil stopped tapping. Elsewhere, the night therapist said. Where would that be? Nowhere, Hop lied. The night therapist made a disgusted noise. The mind's always somewhere, he said. I was thinking about something, Hop admitted. About what? Haupt hesitated, trying to find a suitable lie, but the tapping of the pencil against the wall kept interrupting his thoughts, creating little blinding bursts of light in the darkness of his head. I don't want to tell you, he finally said. 
The tapping of the pencil stopped. Suddenly, Halp's head was dark again. There, said the night therapist. Now we're finally getting somewhere. Did you have any dreams, his day therapist asked. They were sitting in his office, the chairs arranged as if for a staring contest. The day therapist wore glasses that, Haupt felt, gave him an, an advantage. Did the night therapist wear glasses? He must, since the day therapist did, but Haupt didn't remember for certain. With the day therapist right there in front of him, he had a, a hard time imagining the night therapist. No dreams, Haupt said, and then he said, I must have had some dreams, and then I'll be damned if I can remember them. Damned, he thought, wincing inside. Interesting choice of words. But his day therapist just tented his fingers and nodded. How is an apple like a banana? He asked his night therapist a few nights later. The man had run out of space to write on one wall beside the bed and so had moved closer to the window. There, in the cold glow of the street lamp, he looked exceptionally pale, as if he had been chiseled from ice. Excuse me, Hop said. You heard me, his night therapist said. Don't pretend you didn't. <laughs> How do you know if I heard you or not, he asked, irritated. But the night therapist didn't bother to answer. How is an apple like a banana, Haupt mused. They're both fruits, he said. The therapist turned from the window and smiled. Wrong, he said. <laughs> Wrong? They both have skin. Why is that a better answer than they're both fruits? The therapist didn't say anything, just scribbled madly on the wall. <laughs> what are you writing, asked Haupt, but the man didn't answer. Why is yours the better answer, Haupt insisted, but the man simply said, the answer is they both have skin. <laughs> The therapist can't possibly be there at night, Haupt thought near dawn, finding himself alone. It doesn't make any sense. And besides, I didn't give him a key. And yet the man looked exactly like his therapist. He spoke in cadence exactly like his therapist. If it wasn't his therapist, who else could he be? He rubbed his eyes. What else has skin, he wondered idly, and then thought, I do. He was like a banana, and he was like an apple. If you were to draw a circle and put an apple and a banana in it, he would also be allowed to step inside the circle. Nobody could stop him. Who was out there doing that, drawing circles around fruit, drawing circles around people? He considered the chalk outlines that were drawn around dead bodies. So it didn't have to be a circle exactly, just a shape that could contain a fruit or a human or some combination of both. During a lull in the conversation, he asked his day therapist what it was like to know you had been born a twin but would never meet your twin. Excuse me, said the day therapist. You don't have to talk about it if you don't want to, said Haupt, using a phrase he'd often heard his day therapist use, usually at moments when Haupt suspected the man least meant it. How would I know what it's like to have a twin, asked the day therapist. But, said Haupt, and stopped, weren't you, didn't your twin brother, was, wasn't he born stillborn? But the day therapist was shaking his head. What twin brother? I was an only child. Hadn't the day therapist told him he'd had a twin brother born stillborn? Haupt remembered the conversation nearly perfectly. There had been no possibility of misunderstanding his words. Why was his day therapist lying to him, lying to him now? He bought an apple. He ate it slowly, puncturing the skin with his teeth and chewing the skin up along with the rest of the apple, except for the seeds and pith. An apple wasn't like a banana, he thought. His night therapist was wrong. They both had skin, but with an apple you could eat the skin, and with a banana you couldn't. You could peel a banana easily with your fingers, an apple you couldn't. To peel an apple of its skin, you needed a knife. A person was more like an apple than a banana. You couldn't peel a person easily with your fingers. 
With a person, you needed a knife. With a person, like an apple, you could eat the skin. He told this to his night therapist, but the man just stood at the window, motionless, not even writing. Help couldn't tell if the man was paying attention. He finished speaking and then waited, but the night therapist didn't turn his pale face away from the window. What's out there? asked Haupt. What's out there? echoed the night therapist, turning abruptly to look at him. The whole world is out there. But what, wondered Haupt, was the whole world? What did that even mean? If you were to draw a circle that contained the world, what else would belong within that circle? And where would you even draw it? What were you thinking about just then? asked the night therapist. He was looking at Haupt now, eyes hungry, gaze steady. Haupt, unable under such a gaze to come up with a suitable lie, chose instead to try to change the subject. It had never worked before, changing the subject, not with the night therapist. There was no reason to think it would this time. The question he asked wasn't a question he'd planned to ask, or would have asked if he'd had time to think it over. It was simply the question that was lingering, unanswered, there within his skull. What was it like being a twin, but, not, but knowing you would never meet your twin? The therapist stopped, held very still. How, he said slowly, did you know I was born a twin? <laughs> the world is a strange place, thought Haupt, alone in the dark, almost unbearably so. And yet it is the only place I have, and I'm not even entirely sure I have it. Why would the day therapist first admit he had a twin and then lie and pretend he did not? What sort of game was that? Was the man playing with him? Suddenly he knew the night therapist was there. Halp drew the blankets judiciously up to his neck. He could see the therapist standing near the window, pencil poised. Shall we continue where we left off last time? The night therapist asked. Halp shook his head and then, worried that the gesture wouldn't be seen in the darkness, said, No. No? Who are you really? asked Halp. What do you mean? asked the therapist. He, looked, he turned to look at Haupt, and again Haupt was struck by the paleness of the man's face. Were you born stillborn, asked Haupt. Born stillborn, asked the therapist slowly, and then his mouth stretched into a wide, mirthless smile. What a curious way to put it, he said in a kind of wonder. Would I need a knife to peel you, Haupt asked. The same mirthless smile, even wider now. Why don't you find out? Haupt threw back the covers. Underneath, he was wearing his clothing. He had been wearing his clothing all night. He approached his night therapist, knife in his white-knuckled hand, but the therapist did not move. He lunged with the knife. But he must have closed his eyes briefly, for the therapist wasn't quite where Haupt thought he was and was unscathed. He lunged again and this time saw the knife pass through the therapist's chest effortlessly, as if it wasn't there at all. But when he looked up at the man's face, he found his mouth to be full of blood. The man laughed, and the blood spilled down his chin. Haupt pushed the knife through him again, and more blood came out of the man's mouth, but there was still no sign of a wound on his body, still no resistance of the knife as it went in. "'What's wrong with you?' asked Haupt, alarmed. "'What's wrong with me?' said the therapist. <laughs> "'How can I answer that? "'Don't you know by now that our time is supposed to be about you? "'Haupt, what's wrong with you?' Time passed. At some point, Halp dropped the knife and made for the door. But there was the night therapist just in front of him, no matter which way he turned. Halp, more and more confused, had felt parts of his mind growing numb, shutting down. What sort of treatment is this? One of the remaining parts of his mind was wondering. Isn't this the sort of thing frowned upon by the therapeutic community? But when he asked the therapist, the man just laughed and came closer. Shouldn't I have been given a safe word? Another part of him wondered. A safe word, said the therapist, though Haupt was certain that he hadn't vocalized the thought. 
Has anything I've done suggest that this was a game of any sort, let alone one of a sexual nature? Are you alive, asked Haupt. Are you? What are you, asked Haupt. What am I? I'm exactly what you think I am. And when Haupt's mind turned inward, trying to understand what he thought the man to be, the man moved closer, licking his bloody lips. He woke up in the, in the morning on the floor, sore. There were shallow cuts on his hands, and his lips, though uncut, were black with blood. With a groan, he got up and picked up the knife. He took a shower. He would talk to his day therapist, he told himself. He would confront the man. He would ask why he was coming at night. And if he wasn't coming at night, if all of it was his imagination or something much worse, well, then at least he would know. He ate an apple. Then he ate a banana. There was something wrong with the banana. It was harder to chew up than he remembered bananas being. It tasted stringy, bitter. But the apple tasted just like he remembered apples tasting. He chewed slowly, washing them both down with water. How was your week, asked his day therapist. Fine, he said. He was hunched over, his hands in his jacket pockets, folded in on himself. Did you have any memorable dreams, asked his day therapist, after a long silence? No, he said, not a one. All the while he was thinking, born, stillborn, stillborn and yet born. What a terrible thing that must be. If a twin doesn't survive in the womb, he was thinking it is usually because the other twin takes the nourishment meant for him. If that twin is stillborn, it's fine. He can be buried and forgotten and he will stay in the ground. But if a twin is born stillborn, well, where does that leave him exactly? His day therapist was staring at him. How long had he been staring? Perhaps a great deal of time had gone by. What is it? asked Haupt. What were you thinking about just then? asked the therapist. Behind the lenses of his glasses, his eyes looked attentive, alert. This and that, he said. His day therapist stayed still, waiting him out, more like the night therapist than the day therapist. Again, Haupt wondered whether he should think of him as one person or two. The day therapist was still staring at him. Haupt moved his hands within his pockets until one of them found the handle of the knife and closed over it. He squeezed it. I was thinking about apples, he said. Apples, said the day therapist, surprised. And bananas, said Haupt. What do you suppose apples and bananas have in common? The day therapist's eyes narrowed slightly. Is this a trick question, he asked. Of course it is, said Haupt. He imagined his knuckles going wide around the handle of the knife. The day therapist was more like an apple than a banana. He would not be easy to peel. Perhaps it would be better to chew all of him up. But answer it anyway, Haupt said. Humor me. Thank you. I actually, I, I didn't know my therapist was in the audience when I read that. Um, this, is, this is in Rhode Island, and, and uh, he came up afterwards, and I, I, I felt like I was like a deer trapped in the headlights. <laughs> so um, I'm happy to answer any questions you guys have about, about uh, writing or, or life or anything I can manage to give you a reasonable answer to. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you do the, a wonderful version of Baby Quick. What's the first creative work that you remember that's doing that on you? What has uh, the first impact on you? I mean, that's a really good question. Um, it's been long enough. I don't know if I can remember even. Um, the, the thing I always have said about that is I really like work that, that kind of keeps on working on me after I put it down so that I keep on thinking about it and keep on wondering and where things just don't resolve completely. Um, you know, I, I think in, in some ways, um, 
you know, probably was, was Beckett. I read Beckett when I was, was um, pretty young, in eight, late teens, and, and reading Malloy. Um, there's the moment at the end of Malloy where, where, where it kind of, there's a sentence that kind of denies everything that's come before. And I think that just blew my mind that you could do that, um, that, that, that process, which is this, this process of, of negation. Um, and, and probably that was the start of it. Um, my, my dad made the mistake when I was really young, about 13 or 14, he uh, introduced me to Kafka. And I think he's probably always regretted that. Um, but I, I, I think that also, like it, both Beckett and Kafka kind of gave me a sense that there was something that fiction could do that was very different than just depicting reality that had a kind of intensive component to it that, that made you kind of have an experience and that would really change you and kind of keep on working on you. Um, so I guess those were probably the er early ones. I mean, there were other people as well. Um, you know, probably the very earliest one was a science fiction writer, a guy named Gene Wolfe. Um, who had um, um, a, a tetralogy called The Book of the New Sun. And it was, you know, the first thing I'd read that had any kind of unreliable narrator in it. I read that when I was around 12. And it just, again, it was something that, like, I thought, you know, you, you read a book and then you understand what the book means, and then suddenly you're reading a book that you're like, okay, I don't, you know, suddenly this is making me, um, it's changing my sense of just how reality works rather than telling me what this reality is like, so... So I, I, I think I, often in my work I'm trying to re replicate that experience. I like um, works that, um, that deftly play with my expectations. I don't like them if they're not deft, and so, and, you know, so it's hard to kind of figure out that balance exactly. But I guess so, yeah, yeah. I don't, yeah, I guess I'm a magician, yeah. Am I a magician? So, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Thanks. Other questions? Yeah. Yeah. I have almost no control. <laughs> um, I, I translate myself. Um, I, I know French, and so I translate things from French into English. And so the first book of mine that was translated into French, the publisher um, sent me the translation and asked my opinion. And and it was a good translation, but I said, well, the, here's things I would I would think about. Um, uh, and and they uh, just ignored what I said, <laughs> and so. But you know, I I I think in a way it's like I I know French just well enough to I know it pretty well. But I I also think it's I'm not a native speaker, and so I, I don't really know. So there there have been languages I've been translated into that I know, and it's interesting to me to see how the work changes in that context. It does kind of become something else, uh, but it's more interesting when I'm translated into things like Japanese. Um, and, and where I can't read a word of, of it. But, but I have a really, I, the, my two kind of biggest audiences outside the United States are Japanese and French. And the reason I have a good audience in Japan is because um, my Japanese translator is a really famous translator. So when I, when I went over there to sign my first book that was translated, um, they would always have him sign the book as well. <laughs> uh, and sometimes I'd have him sign it and not bother to have me sign it. Um, so, so I just think it's you know it's circumstances and other things, and there's something about so so the French. I've I've done a lot of kind of um, touring over there, and I, I speak French well enough to do that. Um, but but they have this idea that I'm a really American writer. That there's something kind of like inherently American about me, and I think like all American readers think that I'm not that exactly. They see more of the European influences. So so I'm kind of like Jerry Lewis for them, I think, in some ways. <laughs> 
Uh, and then the Japanese, I'm not sure what it is that appeals to them, but there, there is a real um, you know, enthusiasm about my work over there, which is great. So I have no control. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I translate from, from French, and I've done some translation from Spanish, too. Um, I do a lot of French translation, and it, it really varies what I do. But I often, um, when I'm translating or, or doing introductions for books from those languages, I'm, I'm trying to find books that, um, that, that will change the way in which readers will think about literature and the way that writers will change the way that, that writers think about writing as well. So for me, that's kind of the important thing. I, 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 I'll translate, um, you know, uh, I translated some work by Antoine Vouladin, who's a really interesting French writer. Um, and, and it's because he's doing something that's just really different than anything else I've ever seen anyone do. Um, so, so, so it's really that as much as anything. It's like I often translate for selfish reasons, which is I'm trying to bring things into the language that makes it look like I'm not crazy. Or that someone else is doing what I'm doing, uh, yeah. And I mean, there's there's lots of like really interesting things that that in French, which is what I know the best, that, that just have never been translated. Um, like there's a writer named Jacques Barbery um, who's known as a science fiction writer there, but his stuff is so weird um, that it's really hard to think of of him in those terms. And you know, Anne and Jeff Vandermeer did a I translated a story for of his for the um, the big book of science fiction that they did a year or two ago. Um, and their whole project with that was to, to, to try to think of science fiction as something that wasn't just American and bring in um, voices, uh, people of color, people from all over the world in terms of creating a sense of science fiction that's just a very different. And so, so I, I, you know, I think for me too, it's like when I'm, when I'm translating stuff into English, I'm not interested in translating the, the best the the next bestseller. I'm interested in like finding the book that, that is really appealing and, and uh, is gonna that a reader's gonna pick up and say, Oh, this is really different than anything I, I read and it's giving me possibilities that I didn't have before. Um, yeah. Can I talk about mouthful of blood? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, that does come up sometimes in my work. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I with that story, I was interested in the idea of 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 this kind of almost spectral presence that that seems to to you know not be there and that you can't really feel, but that still is exhibiting some sort of symptom, um, and that. You know, we think of the mouth as this thing that we take food into and that language comes out. And so when we think of blood coming out of the mouth, we think of, you know, that's, I think, the moment when, when you know, you feel like someone's really in trouble. Um, so I, I suppose it's that as much as anything. I don't know why I gravitated towards that image in particular. Um, there's, there's certain kinds of images that recur uh, in my stories, and I think it is because there's something about them I don't, that has a certain power I don't quite understand yet and so I keep on going back to him so yeah and in fact when I was reading that story I realized that there's in, in that story there's a phrase that I use in another story and I hadn't realized I'd replicated the phrase and so um, 
you know, and that, so there is something that my subconscious is telling me this story is connected to this other story in your mind. Um, but I, you know, I didn't know that consciously. So. Anything else? Yeah. Uh, well, it, it's, uh, uh, I, th I think it's no matter which way he turned, is that, uh, um, I don't remember the exact phrase now, but that's, that's the, there's a title, I have a story which is called No Matter Which Way um, We Turned, and, and that phrase kind of appears in slightly different form in that story, and it's a story about, um, um, it's a very weird story, it's really short, it's like a page, um, and it's about a, um, um, a girl who, who um, no matter which way she turns, you can't see her face. And so she's always facing away from you no matter what. And she seems to be just, you know, half of a girl in some ways. And it's about people's, you know, fear about this, this moment and what they do with her and how they try to approach her. And I do think that's actually tied to this, this strangeness of the therapist who doesn't seem to be... You know, he, 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 he bleeds, but he also has no evidence of wounds. He doesn't feel them. So there, there's something about those two experiences in my head that are linked. So is that helpful? <laughs> That's, you can see that story. It's, it's online if you just type in my name, and no matter which way, it'll, it'll come up. It's like 300 words. It's really short. So, Yeah. 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 I agree. Yeah. 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 That that that, that is you a know, problem. Like yeah. That. But, yeah. Um, but, Writers are turning more towards the really fucking, excuse me, scary. Yeah, yeah, um, right yeah. Now, and, uh, and what do you think that this genre can do um, that other genres can't? And what, in what ways is it doing it in new or in different ways now that you're? Well, yeah. I mean, I think there are a lot of people kind of working on on the edge of genre in in ways that are really interesting. Uh -huh. um, and you know, there there are people like Kelly Link, obviously, but also. Um, Carmen Maria Machado, um, yeah, yeah, who's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, doing really kind of interesting things and, and goes into some very strange spots as well, yeah. right. Um, and I, I think it's, I, I don't know, I mean, I, I just, I think that, that um, for a long time, I mean, I think there was this idea that, that literature was over here and John was over here, and, and that was partly due to the fact that there were, were a lot of the things that you were talking about, like stuff that was really torture porny and um, kind of moving in that direction. And I think that what's happened is that there's been more of an interrogation of the possibilities of it. Um, for me, it started, the, the, the moment I kind of really started thinking about it was um, Conjunctions years ago did an issue which was called the New Gothic issue. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and it was, um, I, you know, and I was like, oh, wow, this is interesting. I, you know, I'd always kind of been interested in the Gothic but hadn't been, I'd really felt like I was kind of in my own space. And then later, maybe 15, 20 years later, they did an issue which was called um, The New Wave Fabulists. Yeah. And that was an issue where they, they decided to take writers that are seen as genre writers and publish them in conjunctions, which is a kind of upscale literary magazine. 
And the idea being that you would see things about their work that you wouldn't necessarily see if they were being published in, in Asimov's or you know a, a kind of genre magazine. Um, and and for me that was really interesting because you, you you know I immediately started to realize there's this whole kind of thing going on in genre writing that that I just wasn't aware of, and it's just maybe the writers that that I would be most interested in I'm not being exposed to. Um, and so that kind of started me thinking about that. And then in 2003, um, I had a book, The Wavering Knife, which was nominated for an International Horror Guild Award. And when I heard that news that it was nominated, I was like, this is weird. I don't write horror. Why, why would I be nominated for this? And, and then I won it. And then I was like, oh, this, this is even weirder. And, and so uh, when, I, when I did that, I said, you know, I, I should go and look and see what's going on in, in that genre. And very quickly started to realize that there is a lot of interesting stuff going on. But again, it's like there's these filters that kind of keep it away from certain people. Or, you know, this, this I think is one of the very tricky things about literature. There's all sorts of things that would be just incredibly appealing to you that you just don't know how to find, that no one is pointing you towards. For me, to give you an example of that, um, it took me till I was in my 40s to read Muriel Spark, um, who I think is really one of the great, great writers. Um, but no one would recommend it to me because they thought of it as, as, you know, I don't know. They just thought I wouldn't like it or it wasn't appropriate for me. But it's just beautifully written, really excellently done. I think it's because their best-known book is, a, is The Prime Minister Jean Brody, which is about a girl's school. And so they thought, you know, why recommend to Brian a book about a girl's school? But it's a terrific book. It's one of my favorite books. Right, yeah. So, I mean, there's this weird thing where, where um, there are these kinds of things. Ideally, what genre is going to tell you is what you want to read. But often what happens is it kind of keeps you, it puts things in categories and kind of keeps you away from it. And there are kind of, you know, recommendations from friends and, and you know, even things like the way in which Amazon has weird recommendations sometimes um, can, can get you to stuff that you might not know or... Um, uh, but that, that, I think, is an issue. As, when genre becomes a kind of system of control that keeps you from reading the work that would help you to reach a new place as a writer, then that's where it's really problematic. So I kind of just talked around what you said without even saying. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of writing, does the idea of genre shape your process as you're, as you're going through a story? Um, you know, not necessarily. I mean, I, I've had this experience of sometimes publishing... Um, a story both in a genre ven venue and then in a literary venue, the same story. And, and it's just the thing I've found is that there's just, it shapes more the reader and the way the reader approaches it. And so I try to be cognizant about how different readers are going to approach it and try to provide different ways into the story. So I have a very um, bifurcated readership. Um, a lot of people see me as a kind of innovative literary writer and read my work in that way. And then there's people who see me as kind of being someone who's, who's a genre writer, and they read it in a very different way. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think there's... What, what I try to do is just make it possible for them to read it in both ways. So, And either that works really well or, or like, no one likes it, you know, depending on the story. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I always have been really interested in writing. There's something about it um, that appeals to me, and it, it's partly... Um, when my mom was really, when I was really young, my mom um, had a science fiction story accepted, and she liked that experience, and she wanted to keep on writing, but she had five kids. And so to give herself time to write, she would set each of the five kids up doing something. I was the oldest of the five. 
And so my younger brother and sister, she kind of get doing art. And, uh, you know, the middle, for the middle um, two sisters, there were different things. And for me, she just, she's just like, oh, you can just write. And, and so I started doing that and just very quickly realized it was, it was, there was something about the process that was appealing to me. And, and I do like the way in which language um, has all this kind of, you know, all these kind of forces that operate in, within it, that there is a kind of, you know, sonic quality to it. There's a kind of rhythmic quality to it. There's meaning that's by, being carried, but that meaning can often be undercut in interesting ways. And so, so for me, it, it, it does things um, that I haven't found anything else. Uh, I don't know anything else that can quite do the things that, that writing does for me. So, so I, I enjoy it, I guess is why I do it. Yeah. 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 Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I, I kind of, I've kind of come to really enjoy collaboration, and I, I've come to think of of translation as a kind of collaboration, and and it's someone who's taking your work and usually who likes your work quite a bit um, and is um, trying to, um, you know, figure out a way to kind of make it alive in their own language. Um, so I, I'm, I'm okay with it. I really enjoy just the process of, of, of watching what happens, especially when I can kind of understand what's happening. Um, in terms of Japanese, um, and I, I translate a lot myself too. I've probably published a dozen books of translation. Um, but, but with Japanese, um, I had a little graphic novel that came out with McSweeney's, just a little teeny graphic book. And um, the, they, my, my Japanese translator wanted to publish it in a magazine. It's short. Um, but he also wanted to change the images because the, the images didn't work in the same way as he felt like another artist would do. And so that was really interesting to me to just see the images he came up with and how that changed the story. And even, I, even though I can't read his translation of it, I, I know the original story and I can see how he's kind of adjusting and repositioning it in a way that I was actually really happy with. I actually like the second set of drawings maybe a little better than the first. Um, so, and then the same translator, um, he, uh, uh, he's a performer as well. And so I started hearing from friends in Japan that he'd been going around and performing a story of mine called Wendai, where he would roll up a paper cone uh, paper into a cone and would kind of do this thing as he was doing it and you know this whole kind of performance and, and you know obviously it doesn't have that much to do with what I originally did but the fact that it would <laughs> it would inspire him to do this kind of thing is really interesting to me so um, yeah so I like that I mean I do I collaborate with on various things I did an opera at one point um, which was very strange, um, you know, and, uh, um, and eventually they started, the, the, the person who wrote the opera decided he needed me to, um, he wanted to have me be part of the opera and read the narration, and he was like, oh, and can you also do um, Tuvan throat singing? And I was like, what? <laughs> and, uh, and he said, no, 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 I'll teach you. Um, and so we were driving 
um, he was helping me move from one state to another and driving in a, a, a car, and we spent about 14 hours with him teaching me how to, to throat sing, so, which I can't do right now because my throat, you can hear, it's a little scratchy. Um, I'm not very good at it either. So. <laughs> It's called, the opera's actually called The Open Curtain. Um, and there's this funny thing about that, which is I repurposed that title to use it as a book, which is really different from the opera. So, yeah. What's that type of throat singing where you sing two tones at once? And so you kind of are doing a, you're going, and then you're hearing another note that's going, so, yeah. You can, if you type in tube and throat singing to Google, um, you'll find it. It's actually, it's really, when it works well, it's amazing. With me, it's like when I do it, you can kind of hear it and, and you know I'm doing it, but it's not that amazing. So, no, my throat is too, too sore. It won't come out at all. I'll just sound like, you know, it'll sound like an angry cow. <laughs> Well, please uh, put your hands together. Please uh, say hi to Brian and please pick up a book if you'd like a book. Um, uh, thank you so much again. You're welcome. Yeah, please help yourself to these books. These are five dollars, um, and uh, yeah, five dollars. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and these are that's free. That's just free. take it. Oh, yeah, nice. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome. That was amazing. Oh, thank you. I'm glad you thought so. You, are you selling copies of that one? Um, I, I can, sure. I mean, but it's it's like $10. It's, it's not like a cheap one. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have a website that I can order from? Um, you, you can get it from um, the cupboard is where you can pick it up if you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so um, yeah, yeah. Hold on. I've got a wallet in here somewhere. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the smallest, but it's, yeah. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I'm glad you like those ones too. I, I, yeah, yeah. No, that just was, started reading from that. I was Can I take oh, get reports? Sure, also? absolutely. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna buy it. Are yeah. you sure? I'm gonna buy okay. It. Yeah. Oh, and I can sign sign stuff too. You if you laughed want. so well during that. <laughs> I wondered who was laughing. I didn't <laughs> yeah, okay, good to know. <laughs> awesome. You've been there. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, sure. Do you want to assign them to you? Or? Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. That'd be, that'd be cool. yeah. So the, I can't sign the free one. I told them I wouldn't sign it. So, okay. Yeah, but uh, yeah. Um, who am I signing to again? Sorry. Evelyn. Evelyn. That's yeah. right. Um, e v e l y n. Yes. Okay. How long have you been in the program here? Um, I'm a first year MFA. Where student, Where so. are you coming from before? Uh, Alabama. Oh wow, where in Alabama? Uh, Huntsville. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. I was living in Atlanta right before I came here, but I'm from Huntsville. Right, right, right. Yeah. 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 Well, welcome to San Diego. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's a good. I'm sure it's a good. Uh, um, yeah, good switch in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. So I mean, Atlanta's good, but uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, Atlanta's Atlanta's fine. I mean, it was in comparison to Alabama, it was great. But then I moved out here, and I was like, oh, Atlanta. Yeah, 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 yeah. And apparently, this is the this is the conservative part of California. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, no, there's there's uh, other parts that are really great. So yeah, yeah. 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 I'm, I'm, I might be doing that this summer. I might head up to like the Bay Area. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. 
And, you know, even L.A. has some amazing things. I've been up to L.A. a couple of times, and I had a great time. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Both times. Yeah. yeah, what part of L.A. did you go to? Um, Compton. Uh -huh. I, I went to a, uh -huh. uh, this party in Compton that was mm -hmm. a whole lot of fun. And... Oh, I can't remember where it, means, where, where it was that me and TM were. Mm -hmm. He was driving, though. So, uh -huh. yeah, uh -huh. I don't know. We oh, cool. ate Korean barbecue yeah, and went to a bar. Oh, awesome. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, yeah. yeah. nice to meet you, Evelyn. Yeah, yeah. nice to meet you, too. Um, and I, I don't know what you're doing after this, but I hope um, I, I think they have me doing something. I'm not sure. Thanks. I appreciate yeah, yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hi, how you doing? Good. Nice to meet you, too. That's good. Oh, good. I'm glad you did. And it's for you to you know, come up to you and ask you this question. Sure. Um, have you ever been Red House? Yes, I have. I have Red House. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Mark and I went to rival high schools when we were uh, in, you know, we were both living in Utah years ago. So, so yeah, I've read it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, I love the way that the basement, you know, the, the underground space opens up in that box. So, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I haven't read The Familiar. I haven't followed that along, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I totally get it. Yeah, yeah. So. You're very welcome. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah. Hey, how you doing? You can absolutely. What what do you want to buy? So that's it's ten dollars. It's an expensive little one, but uh, if you if you want to, you're welcome to. Okay. Uh, it's be I I don't know. It's just that's what they sell it for. Yeah, you can. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, so for you, this one because of um, the SF component. That's that's more kind of science fiction. So. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Shelby, nice to meet you. I'm in the MFA too. Oh, okay, excellent. Oh, okay, you're welcome. I just started having my awakening to sci-fi and horror. Oh, cool. What is my work? And yeah, I'm yeah. just learning about like what work is. Oh, cool. Do you want me to sign that one? Sign this? Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much. You bet. Show me. Thank you so much for your reading. You're welcome. And um, can you just tell me something about um, post-human? Because I know that from like an eco-poetics yeah, yeah, context. Yeah, yeah, um, And I'm kind of struggling with that too. <laughs> well, so this is, I mean, yeah, so this book is about, you know, it's someone who, who's kind of, seems to have changed and transformed and, and something's happened in the world and we don't know exactly what it is and things like that. So it's more vaguely kind of about that, but it, it raises a lot of questions about what it what it means to be human and, you know, at what point, you know, what your connection to the larger world is and things like that. So, but in a fairly dark way in my case. So, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, that's not, not a very good description. No, I appreciate it. Thank you. So, oh, yeah. So you wanted this one. Um, but, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to sign. I'll just sign both. Oh, let me do that. Yeah, happy to do that. So, um, remind me of your name. I'm sorry, Robin. R O B I or B Y? Okay. Right. <laughs> do you get that ever or not? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And are you in the MFA program or undergrad? Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Are you from the area? Or are you? Oh yeah, yeah. We're in Southern Orange County. 
Yeah, I, I lived in Mission Viejo when I was growing up a little, for just like a year when I was growing up, yeah. So, so which wasn't a bad place to grow up with, but I, I was, yeah, I was glad I wasn't there for too long. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This one is only five Yeah, yeah. I'm not buying Oh, you're very welcome. You're welcome. No, thank you for coming. I appreciate it. There you go. Thank you so much. And I hope you enjoy the reports as well. Yeah. I hope I didn't read the very best one. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, maybe you should start off with like the worst. Or, uh, yeah, maybe. Do you even have like a, do you have like a sense of order between like the worst and the best? Not, not exactly. I mean, I think that for me that the deal is that, uh, so those two kind of give a sense of what what the book as a whole is doing where it's like saying something and then also like it's both being non-fictional and also fictional at the same time so that's why i tend to read them together so you have to remind me i've forgotten your name suddenly sorry uh greg louie l-o-u-i g-r-e-g-l-o-u-i so after the next one you want to just do you guys have a library at the um, Arthur C. Clarke thing, or how do they do it? Um, or is it? So we're in, like, transition right now. We're waiting for a space to get constructed for us. Oh, uh-huh. So we're just sort of stashed away in, like, a couple of office spaces right now. Oh, uh-huh. So did, did, did Clark, was he from around this area, or I'm curious why that... Uh, you don't know? As yeah. far as I can tell, it just sort of landed in uh-huh. the area. Because, like, Arthur C. Clarke is from Britain. So, yeah. And he ended up in Sri Lanka. So oh, okay. All if right. Any, if anyone was going to have a place, it was either going to be Britain or Sri Lanka. Right, right. Uh, San Diego just happened to be because I think um, it just sort of landed in the area. And, like, we ended up being very strong in terms of just science fiction in general in SoCal mm-hmm. and I think like you, you see San Diego system just saw a possibility in the environment yeah yeah there. yeah yeah and oh cool yeah. yeah yeah that's cool it's definitely cool so it's, it's been a fun ride so far I've gotten yeah. so many different authors yeah yeah I was last summer I was the intern for Clarion so yeah, I got yeah. to meet like uh, you saw C.C. Finley Nala Hopkinson yeah yeah Nala's uh, great yeah. yeah she's amazing yeah and um I'm forgetting her name. Did, right did now. Linda Berry. Okay, yeah, Linda yeah. Linda, I didn't know you guys had Linda Berry out. That's the the, the, the one the, who does the graphic. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. And, yeah, and just as a part of being a UC San Diego student, we've met like uh, we have actual oh, actual mean, shit to know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. It's, it's really yeah, weird. Yeah. Uh, Cindy Pond, uh, Andy Weir. Yeah, yeah. Um, huh. Uh, Kim Stanley Robertson, yeah. Vernon yeah. Vinci. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know Vernon Vinci, but yeah, that's really weird. And David Vernon, of course. Yeah. Well, when you, when, you, um, when you guys have a space, um, send me an email and I'll just send you a couple of books that are like SF related for, for your library. So. Well, I mean, there is actually a place called Dark Star. Uh-huh. Um, 
It's a student-run sci-fi and fantasy oh. library. Okay. Yeah. Well, here I'll give you. I'll give you this for. Do you want to take this for Darkstar? Sure. I'll sign it, and yeah, that'll be my donation. <laughs> yeah. Or you can tell Darkstar that you had to pay five dollars for it and get your five dollars back. So yeah. yeah, yeah. It's UC San Diego is a really weird campus, and how like there's. I think I told you there's so many different opportunities. Yeah. Like you said, it's really hard to find the opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's a big enough campus that I would I, that probably you don't always know what's going on in another department. So, so cool. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. You're very welcome. Really interesting. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, good. I'm glad you thought so. Yeah, yeah. Like, I've never actually heard of micro. Oh. I'm waiting. Okay. Yeah. You've never what? I've never heard of micro essays. Oh yeah. Uh, it's it's not super common, but yeah, absolutely.